Welcome to COVID Conversations, Life in a Time of Corona. This is a podcast from the Ohio State University's Center for Folklore Studies. In it, we hear from artists, scholars, and humanities professionals in Ohio in conversation with their counterparts elsewhere in the world about how their work, their thinking, and their creativity has been affected and informed by the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and I'm a folklorist and radio producer based in Columbus, Ohio. And for this episode, which we're recording remotely on the 1st of December of 2020, I'm honored to welcome two world-class musicians from two of the world's greatest orchestras, Mark Kosowa, principal cello with the Cleveland Orchestra, and Matthew Hunter, violist with the Berlin Philharmonic. And incidentally, although Matthew has lived in Germany since joining the Berlin Philharmonic 25 years ago, he was born in Ohio and spent some years working here, although he grew up in Massachusetts. Mark Kosowa took up his position with the Cleveland Orchestra in 2010, and both Mark and Matthew perform as soloists and chamber ensemble players, as well as with their respective orchestras. So Mark Kosowa and Matthew Hunter, you are both warmly welcome to this COVID Conversations podcast. Great to be here. Thank you, Rachel. As I said, we're recording this on the 1st of December of 2020, and we have been living with the COVID pandemic, gosh, for about eight or nine months now. I'm curious to know how you're feeling eight or nine months in. Let me put that to you first, Matthew, since you're furthest away. Things are a bit slow. <laughs> you know, we're, we're um, waiting here in Germany for the numbers to start coming down. And they're not coming down. They're, they, we've kind of uh, reached a plateau. And just before we started recording, you mentioned you've been doing some rather appetite reading. Yeah, it's a book of legends. And the legends are collected by a Swedish writer named Selma Lagerlöf. She was the first lady to ever win the Nobel Prize in Literature. So she's written this legend about a knight who has made the quest to Jerusalem in the year 1099. And he returns to Florence with a flame that has been lit from the Holy Sepulchre and Jerusalem and makes the quest back to Florence all alone and keeps the flame alive all the way from Jerusalem to Florence and arrives in Florence with this flame that through the miraculous intervention of good strangers and some acts of nature, he delivers on Easter Sunday this flame. The flame is received there as a great symbol of hope and causes sort of a renaissance for the entire city. And I see this parable as kind of a, a story about what Mark and I are up against, keeping the flame of music alive against a lot of strong winds, storms of all kinds, and... It feels like we still have a long way to go. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to put this in perspective. It's been such a long time. And I know that Mark must be as frustrated as I am. We really do feel that we have something to protect and something to deliver and keep alive. Absolutely. And we're going to be finding out a lot about that as this episode goes on. But Mark, how are you doing in these times? Well, I feel like I'm doing as well as one can do <laughs> in this era. I feel very fortunate, actually. And like Matthew, I'm sure feels to still be working, to still be able to perform with 
the ensemble, what we signed up to do, and Matthew playing with the Berlin Philharmonic, myself playing with the Cleveland Orchestra, and I'm even more fortunate in that I'm, you know, one of the musicians in the Cleveland Orchestra who gets to perform this fall because we're playing in only a string orchestra uh, setting because of the risks involved and how we've been advised by the Cleveland Clinic in terms of wind players. It was interesting when the pandemic first hit here in the States, which was about the middle of March, things started really shutting down. You know, for about two weeks, we were all kind of waiting to see what was going to happen long term. And I read everything I could find about the virus, about what's going on in every corner of the world. And of course, this was an opportunity. Everything stopped to really take care of things you've been needing to take care of in your life. And so, you know, in a life where something to do with music is always happening and for it all to stop. And, and I even didn't, wasn't even practicing that much for those first couple of weeks because I really was, you know, focused on other things. But then towards the end of March, I put a recording of the Cleveland Orchestra in, I, well, I actually went to Spotify to listen to it, but it was our recording of Beethoven 132. And it just hit me so hard. And it was such a wonderful reminder how much we need music and how, you know, it's, it's what of course, we know as musicians all along, that's why we're doing this. People need music. Music picks up where words fail. But it was a reminder. And from that moment on, I started to reconstruct my new life in the coronavirus era, as Matthew, I'm sure, did. And we all did once we learned that this was really going to be for the long haul. I'm going to ask you more about what happened after COVID kind of hit in a minute. But first of all, I'm curious to know when you knew it was going to be a problem, even if you didn't realize it was going to last for months and months. Matthew, what were you doing, say, in February, early March of this year? You know, in February, I was in Japan on a tour with my piano quartet. And it was interesting because we saw every day in the Japan Times that the numbers were getting worse in Wuhan. By the end of the tour, all of the shops, the little family marts, ran out of face masks. And I had to really, really search around before I could buy some face masks to wear in the airplane on the way back to Germany. Then towards the end of the month, the piano quartet went on another tour, this time to the United States. And it seemed that COVID was chasing us. It chased us out of Japan, then it chased us through the United States so that the last concert we played in Georgia on March 7th was the last concert to have been played at that venue in the year 2020. And in fact, I think almost all the venues that we performed in have been closed since we performed our concert. So we were like the closing act for a, a large part of the world. Um, we really felt we were being chased by COVID. And was there any music that you were playing at that time in these performances that was kind of expressing any of the anxiety that you might have been feeling at that time? Well, I, I don't think we want to really be expressing anxiety when we're performing. But I think that the feeling that this concert, this public is hearing, is the last concert they're going to hear because, I mean, we could see it coming. You know, there were cancellations following us as we, we made our trip. The very last concert, sitting in the front row, were my parents, which was a, an extra bonus for the trip. 
And my father is 91, my mother's 88. And so I had as this special audience, my parents, and it, I don't know, it, it, we didn't feel that we were expressing anxiety, but we were expressing the essential and the, the, the necessary of humanity. Right. How lovely that your parents were there. That's such a nice thing to have happened at this final concert. Very, very rare. <laughs> it's very rare. And in fact, that concert was the last concert that I've performed since March 7th for a, a full audience. Can you remember any of the pieces that you played at that concert? On all of the programs, we were playing a piano quartet by Danny Elfman, who is the composer of the music for Batman and every Tim Burton film ever made. He composed this piano quartet for us, which we've just recorded for Sony Classical. So that was a very large part of the thrust of this tour, introducing this work. It's very moody, it's very energetic, sometimes frenetic, very expressive of the, the current situation in the world. Philharmonic Piano Quartet featuring my guest Matthew Hunter performing the very beginning of the piece composed for them by Danny Elfman during a performance they gave as part of the Dumbarton Concert Series in Washington DC on the 29th of February of this year. Mark, what about you? You were in Cleveland playing in the orchestra, right, when things began to go bad. That's right. And yeah, I was following the news, particularly what was going on in Italy through February. I mean, it, it became very clear that this was a very serious situation and it was only a matter of time before this virus would really fully uh, invade the United States and there was no stopping it. With the orchestra, just gradually our activities started falling like dominoes. We were actually supposed to go on a very 
significant tour to Vienna and Abu Dhabi in the second part of March. And, and also uh, we were going to Paris and, and a few other places. We had you know many symphonies of Schubert and Prokofiev, those two composers, that was the focus of the tour. And the repertoire was falling off quickly and our schedule was falling off quickly until finally on Friday the 13th in March, which um, actually for me personally has always been a good day. The 13th of Friday haven't been anything negative in my life. And this was no exception because on Friday the 13th, March 13th, there was the second recording session for Schubert's, uh, the great symphonies, Schubert Symphony Number no. 9. We were supposed to play three performances of this work. All the concerts got canceled. And so we ended up having two more or less in-house performances that were then used for the recording. And particularly the Friday morning, everybody really gave it their all. I mean, the Cleveland Orchestra has, you know, incredible pride. And so they always bring their triple A game to all services. But this was much more than that. I mean, there was a sense of heightened inspiration. There was a feeling of not knowing what the future may behold and really just, yeah, it was, there was something transcendent about that performance. And that was the last time the Cleveland Orchestra has played together in its entirety as an orchestra ever since it has been smaller chamber music groups. And then of course, with the launch of the new season this fall, it's basically been a chamber orchestra and at that a string orchestra. So this was a really big moment um, for uh, the orchestra and, um, and it was reflected in, in the music.
That's the ending of Schubert's Symphony No. 9, as performed by the Cleveland Orchestra with music director Franz Velsamerst, recorded in Severance Hall in Cleveland on Friday the 13th of March of this year. Actually, Mark, I wanted to clarify something. You said that the orchestra is only performing with strings at the moment. Is that something to do with other areas of the orchestra, such as winds, being considered more prone to spread COVID if the musicians are affected themselves? Well, you know, I think some of the great European orchestras have taken a little bit of a different approach. But our orchestra, we're following mainly what the Cleveland Clinic tells us, even though we're also very much aware of the studies being done in Europe about the spreading of the virus. But at the clinic, they just weren't comfortable enough with wind players. And and I also think that we've taken a, a very careful approach because the virus just simply has never been nearly as under control in the States as it was in Europe. And so that in, in and of itself required greater caution. Okay, that makes sense. So Matthew, you said you were on this tour, <laughs> this tour where you were closing down one concert hall after another as you were leaving it. A great feeling. <laughs> What's the idea to get back to Berlin and back to playing with the orchestra? Were you going to be continuing with the piano quartet? What had been the planned schedule for you? The planned schedule was to return from that tour and then two days later be sitting in the orchestra and performing a program with Sir Simon Rattle. So I did return and I went to the first rehearsals and then we received the information from the, the federal ministries that from the coming Sunday, we would be in something called a total lockdown. That was a really strange thing. You know, the numbers in Germany today are five times what they were at the height in April at the first wave. But the way that we're dealing with the virus is totally different. I can remember those first weeks in March, I would dress up like an astronaut, basically, to go grocery shopping. And now I have the hand sanitizer, I have the face mask, and it, it doesn't seem so threatening. The same thing with respect to the way we control the stage during the pandemic. We actually did our own studies from the Charité, which is a very large research hospital in Berlin. And the, the people from the Charité came with dummies, and they used these human-shaped dummies on stage at various places to test the diffusion of aerosols in the hall. And we also looked at the system in the hall for air circulation and realized that we replaced the air 10 times an hour with this system. So the Charité recommended that if we do COVID tests twice a week, we will be able to have a full stage. In the first phase of this crisis, like the Cleveland Orchestra, we were only playing works written for strings. And I can remember when we first had our trombones back and our trumpets and our horns and the rest of the orchestra, um, it was a, a wonderful feeling. So I can tell you, I had my 16th COVID test this morning. We have a rehearsal tomorrow at 2 p.m. This is for this week. And I'll have the results of the COVID test before the rehearsal tomorrow. So every member of the orchestra who's performing has been tested, including also the administrative staff. And then following the rehearsal on Wednesday, then Thursday morning, we have another fast test. And then we have the Thursday rehearsals, then Friday and Saturday night, we have the dress rehearsal and the concert for our digital concert hall, which means 
There's no audience except the digital audience. The hall is empty. It's a different strategy that we have. And, you know, <laughs> we're, we're playing the repertoire. It means a lot of testing. And we've been lucky so far. We haven't had any outbreak in the orchestra. We're taking a very, should I say aggressive? I don't know. But it seems to me that we're taking a more, sure, use the word aggressive approach to going through our repertoire. Mark, how does that all sound to you? Is that something, actually, just before I ask you that, I do want to ask you that, but I'm curious to know from both of you as string players, what I found washing my hands, you know, every 20 minutes and using a lot of alcohol sanitizer is my hands are drying out, but also the fingertips in particular are getting kind of like crunchy. Is that affecting you? And does it make a difference to how you approach your instruments. Mark, do you want to take that one first? Well, should I do an advertisement for Germex? <laughs> the, the hand sanitizer? <laughs> because I was having that very issue at the beginning of the pandemic with another brand that I will protect their business and not mention. But in terms of a hand sanitizer that actually also keeps the hands pretty moist for the most part, um, I would recommend trying Germex because they have some type of moisturizer it really has not dried my hands out like before with some of the other brands i was using so matthew do you want to make a shout out for any particular brand of sanitizer or tell us about how you've dealt with this i i really love them all rachel but i would have to say my main concern is that we use the sanitizer pretty much throughout the day in all the breaks from the rehearsals and i'm concerned about getting all those chemicals on my viola and I think that the varnish could be very sensitive to all the alcohol and all the other additives that are in there to kill the germs. So I'm more concerned about what the possible damage to the varnish could be. So <laughs> my hands are, are not perturbed. I feel like there's a whole new kind of like entrepreneurial venture here. It's like creating a hand sanitizer for musicians that keeps their hands soft <laughs> and lovely, but doesn't damage their instruments. <laughs> Before we went off on that slight detour, Mark, I was asking you how you felt about the way that Matthew was describing the Berlin Philharmonic's approach to playing in more recent weeks and months. Does that sound similar in any way? Yes. And in fact, there's many more parallels than differences. We do a weekly COVID test for any employee of the orchestra, whether it's administration, musicians, or anybody working in the building. So that's very much the same, except we do a test once per week instead of twice. We also do a daily temperature check. You know, of course, everybody has to wear a mask in the building at all times. They've also changed the air filtration system in the building to meet the highest standards set by the CDC. There are handles throughout the building on doors that are touchless. And as it has been explained to us by the Cleveland Clinic, none of these methods by themselves are foolproof or absolutely secure. So what they try to do is create layers of protection like Swiss cheese. So if you took many different layers of Swiss cheese and put them against each other, then most of the holes, if not all, will be covered at some point. I have to really hand it to the Cleveland Orchestra. They've done everything possible to ensure everyone's safety and to make it possible to go back to work in a circumstance 
where, yeah, the virus has never really been under control in America. I, I would say the, the real difference between us and Berlin is that we cannot sit closer than six feet apart. So we are really spread out across the stage. And so that, I, I believe, uh, Matthew may know otherwise. He can uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But, but we have this six feet distancing uh, between each and every player on stage. And so there, all these measures are, are constantly being done to also secure safety on stage. Actually, Matthew sent me an email about this. Apparently, I'm referring to it, there needs to be a distance from and between wind players of two meters, which is about six and a half feet. But the distance between string players now is no different from what it would be normally in non-COVID times, unless a particular player asks for a greater distance. So now I kind of want to go backwards in time to directly after everything sort of stopped because, I mean, I think that was hard for everyone, but for people who work as musicians who are constantly communicating with one another through music in physically quite intimate spaces on a daily basis, that seems like it must have been a huge shock to go from that to nothing at all. Mark, you already mentioned that you took a couple of weeks off from playing. Matthew, what did you do? Well, I developed a very strong interest in my garden at that point. I bought a new apartment about two years ago. With the apartment came uh, just a completely blank piece of earth. And a garden is a very rare thing to have here uh, in the middle of a city. I have a southern facing lot and I get lots of sun. So I planted peach trees and have currants and strawberries and blackberries and flowers for the bees and these sorts of things. I just spent a lot of time trying to develop this garden this past spring. And I read a lot of books. I did a lot of cooking. I did a lot of writing. And I used the time creatively in other ways because I felt, I felt quite stymied in music at that point. I felt very disappointed. I felt very isolated. I mean, we were in a total lockdown. That means that we had only two or three defined reasons to leave our apartments. And it was a, a very strong state of alienation. I turned to other interests and you know, ended up doing all kinds of other projects. I didn't necessarily gravitate towards music in the moment. I think that the most emotional moment for me was I think towards the end of the month was when I opened up the windows of my kitchen and played Bach to the community of my neighbors. And boy, was that hard. That was really hard. <laughs> that was a, a deeply emotional thing for me to be playing. And, and all my neighbors, they had their windows open. And, you know, I could hear them applauding from their windows. And we were talking to one another across the courtyard. And it was just a, a very strange and sad thing. And was this an impromptu performance? Had you told them you were going to play to them? This sounds, I mean, it sounds kind of amazing. Well, we started chatting and one of my neighbors said, why don't you play? Let's, we'd love to hear the music. We need the music. We need to hear something. And so I put together a short program and we have a WhatsApp channel for our community. I just said, okay, at you know such and such an hour, I'm going to play a bit of Bach if you want to open your windows. And actually, people came from other buildings forward into our courtyard and were standing there, and it was meaningful. That must have been really amazing 
for your neighbours as well as for you. Um, but apart from that, it sounds like you mostly stopped playing for a while. And I'm curious to know what that was like for you physically. I mean, was it quite nice in a way for your body to have a little bit of a rest from those daily practices? I think it was very healthy. After the tours that I'd played, and you know, there was another tour in January with my string sextet. I mean, we were flat out for the first two months. My body really needed a rest. But yeah, you know, after two or three weeks, then your body is rested and you start breaking down what condition you had. So at some point, we have to really maintain our structures and maintain our condition so that when the time comes, we can play again. Mark, you said, I think you took a couple of weeks off of playing. Is that right? Essentially, yes, there was a little bit, but not very much, which was pretty unusual for my life. I really turned to nature right as the pandemic struck and I started hiking a lot. I figure all of the great composers, certainly leading up to the First World War and many to follow after that, were inspired by the natural world. And for me, it was very comforting and inspiring. And it, it was just a release from having to be thinking about what was going on in the world all of the time. Following those two weeks, once we really found out that this was really not going away, I, I didn't think it would, but we then had more scientific evidence about how it was spreading in this country. Then I took to technology. I think I was probably on the earlier side of using technology in ways I probably wouldn't have otherwise, starting with projects with my colleagues here in the orchestra, followed up by other projects with musicians elsewhere. And then I started doing presentations online and was asked to talk to orchestra programs at various universities. I did a performance of Bach from my apartment here. And then a local musician, Todd Wilson, he teaches organ at the Cleveland Institute of Music and is also the artistic director of music at Trinity Cathedral. He had the vision to create two live stream concerts of the Bach cello suites modeled after Andrea Bocelli's performance in the Duomo in Milan, right as the pandemic struck. Uh, so the idea was that a cello would perform in the cathedral here in Cleveland to nobody being there, no audience, and for it to be live streamed over Facebook to raise money for victims of COVID-19 in Northeast Ohio. And so I was thrilled to be asked to do this. And I have to say it was, it was really a powerful experience. Um, if there is music in the world that provides inspiration, comfort, feelings of triumph and compassion, it's the music of Bach. It's some of the most powerful music in the world. I've taken Bach out into the community in person over the summer, uh, socially distanced performances. One of the initiatives of the Cleveland Orchestra was to start performances for frontline workers at our healthcare providers here in town, including the Cleveland Clinic and Metro Health. And also then another thing we started doing was to play live outdoor performances for our supporters in the area. But I have to say one of the most powerful 
moments after that beginning for me personally was I was invited in June to travel to Colorado Springs to play socially distanced chamber music live, but not for an audience to be streamed and for radio. But that was the first time that I actually sat and played music in another room with another human being since that March 13th Cleveland Orchestra performance and recording of Schubert 9. And I almost cried just because you feel the presence of another human being and are actively, you know, communicating with them in chamber music that can't, with all the technology in the world, uh, at least to this point, it's it'll never be the same experience as being in the same place with that person. There's incredible potential for technology to help deliver the message worldwide and to augment in so many beautiful ways what we're doing. But it just shows that live performance and being there together is sort of irreplaceable. Absolutely. Matthew, what about you? What are some of the highlights of in-person or virtual performances that have happened in these months? I'd have to agree with Mark completely that the corona pandemic has been fueling us in a way to find new new methods, new techniques, new technologies of reaching an audience, of getting our message out. And I can now tell you what an HDMI cable is. I have this USB microphone that I never had before. And I actually gave a masterclass at an American university two weeks ago where I had a 50-inch screen that was connected by the HDMI to my laptop, which was interfacing with this USB microphone. And I was teaching at a university where none of the students was even in this state. I had a student in Pakistan, a student in the Ukraine, a student in California, um, a student in Minnesota, and... There were another 40 or so guests, and it was a unique experience. Like Mark was saying, human contact is something that we miss so keenly. We certainly cannot replace that, and this is only an attempt, but I was kind of amazed that I was able to pull all that together, all that technology. I mean, I never did that before. As far as performing for the Digital Concert Hall, that has always meant something to me not because we feel that we're on the cutting edge of something, but because I know that back home in Augusta, Georgia, my parents are sitting down and they're watching the concert. And there's always an email waiting for me by the time I get home from the hall, usually from my mother and says, you look tired <laughs> or I like your haircut. <laughs> or <laughs> I mean, it has bridged the distance since the, Digital Concert Hall came into being, I think it was more than 10 years ago. And it certainly doesn't replace being with my parents, but it gives them a very special way to stay in contact with me and, and to stay up with what we're doing. But there is nothing that can ever replace that absolute ecstasy when you feel that you've really made that connection with your audience and that you're playing the concert together. Music is kind of a, a transaction. And I really miss the energy from the audience and their input. And I certainly hope we get them back as soon as possible. One of the 
things I was struck by when we were setting up the time to do this recording was that neither of you knew your schedules very far in advance. I had recently heard something on the news about some supermarket workers only getting their schedules three days ahead. And that was seen as a very bad thing and something that only happens to people in, I'm trying to think of a good way to describe them, jobs um, not very prestigious jobs. Now, you both work in incredibly prestigious situations. So I was quite surprised to find out that you often don't know your schedules very far in advance. Now, is this a side effect of COVID or is it always like this? This is absolutely a sign of COVID. We usually know three years in advance what we're going to be doing, but it's just getting down to the fine details because of COVID. Are we going to be allowed to have an audience? If we're going to have an audience, then that changes the schedule. We have a conductor who got sick at the end of last week. So we didn't really know until Saturday if we were going to be meeting tomorrow. Thank goodness we were able to find a replacement. But remember, no one's traveling. No one wants to fly. So we can only produce the schedule when we know what the conditions are going to be. And they've been changing almost on a weekly basis at the top governmental levels. We have to be very flexible and react to that. But at the same time, we all know <laughs> that no one has anything else to do. <laughs> so we we all have we all have ultimate flexibility, Rachel. We can come in anytime. So and we're not demanding from our, our management that we have you know, fixed dates at this point. We're all flexible. We know we are. And how about you, Mark? How is this affecting you and your colleagues in terms of scheduling? Well, very similar to what Matthew said. I mean, and, and I, I should say we're talking about the Berlin Philharmonic and the Cleveland Orchestra. We're talking about two of the leading orchestras in the field. And what that means is both in terms of artistic planning, both in terms of trying to secure the most uh, sought after conductors and soloists, the planning has to be years and years in advance. And this is the norm at the moment, though, and by choice, they've made a strategic decision to kind of wait with things until the last minute so that we're able to be flexible and react to what the government in Columbus is saying, what the Cleveland Clinic is saying, what is going on in terms of the virus so that we can adjust our plans to best serve our community. If we're making plans ahead of, of what's going on in real time, we may actually not be able to deliver the music because our decisions may affect people's safety and well-being or in some other way prevent the music from happening. And so I think it's a very intelligent strategy and has enabled us to really deliver music in, I think, the best possible way. But it just requires flexibility from everyone. And and I know our, our management has said they've designed so many <laughs> programs and different things along the way that haven't been able to be used because, you know, something will happen that, okay, now you can't use these musicians or, or this artist isn't able to come or now you can only have so many people in the hall and so it's actually served us well to be flexible. And hopefully this flexibility of your respective orchestras is going to also be able to respond to the vaccine being rolled out, which we're, I think we're all hoping is going to happen at some point in the not too distant future. 
Yes. And I may also add in terms of, you know, the idea, uh, Matthew said something that reminded me. Um, yeah, the assumption now is when people contact you is that you're not doing anything. But it's actually so untrue. And I noticed um, certainly myself and with uh, most of the people I've been in contact with, you know, life has gone on and people have schedules and things are taking place. They're just not taking place in the way we're accustomed to them taking place so much in person, but it is, uh, I think, unfair to assume that everybody is at home waiting for a text or an email or a phone call. <laughs> and and I think in any field too, if you have a calling and feel compelled to do something, you're going to do everything you can to, to not let uh, you know unfortunate circumstances get in the way. And that is a salient reminder to me that I need to bring this conversation to a close because I know you have both have things that you need to get to. But before I do, is there anything you'd like to add, either of you, or anything that you'd like to say to each other? I agree with Mark. People are moving on despite the pandemic. We are busy. We are doing things. You know, in this time, I've had the time to deal with some financial and legal issues that um, are important in running a household and running a family, such as writing a will. <laughs> and the funny thing is that I mentioned to some people that I'd been writing a will, and they had too. <laughs> and, uh, then I discovered that during this pandemic time, a lot of people have had thoughts about mortality and making necessary preparations for the future. And it really has changed the way we think about time, you know, time on this earth. And it, in some ways, has been very beneficial and it has been an opportunity. Other than that, I'd like to just say what a pleasure it is uh, to meet you, Mark, from this distance. And I'd love to see you sometime in Berlin. Maybe we'll get to Cleveland sometime. And thank you, Rachel, for this uh, wonderful conversation and for bringing us all together. It's been a pleasure. Mark, what about you? Any final thoughts? Any final words? Yes, what Matthew was saying in terms of this being an opportunity, I mean, I think that's so crucial. I was reading things from the business world about, you know, basically successful business people. They look at any situation, whether it initially comes forward as a positive situation or a negative, as an opportunity. You know, they say, how can you turn lemons into lemonade, right? And I, I really think that in itself is the right attitude for life in general. And I think there have been so many lessons to be learned and things to discover during this time. One of those things I think is definitely home time and spending more time with family and the importance of that. And just also to, to have, you know, our world moves every year at an ever increasing speed and to really have the luxury of having a little more time to think about things to reflect. And if you can try to, to spin it to work for you in your favor and for people around you, you're going to be a lot better off. And I want to say as well, it's been such a pleasure listening to you, Matthew. I can't wait to meet you in person. Thank you, Mark. And Rachel, thank you for the interview today. It's been such a pleasure meeting you and you run a wonderful interview as well. Oh, thank you. Well, listen, thank you so much to both my guests today. They were Matthew Hunter, violist with the Berlin Philharmonic, and Mark Kosawa, principal cello with the Cleveland Orchestra. And you can find out more about both of my guests in the notes which accompany this podcast. Mm -hmm.
COVID Conversations, Life in the Time of Corona is a production of the Center for Folklore Studies at The Ohio State University. It's funded by the university's Global Arts and Humanities Discovery Theme Grant Initiative. A great many people have been instrumental in making this series happen, too many to name here, but I would like to express special thanks to Paul Kotheimer, Cassie Patterson, and Nick Spitulski. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and thank you for listening. <laughs>